And it's a privilege to preach about it this morning with you. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5? I'm always thankful to get a chance to stand in this pulpit and address you. Romans chapter 5, you'll notice we are not in Psalms, but uh, David, I mean, Paul quotes Psalms quite often in Romans, so that's why we're there. (laughs) Uh, Romans 5 is full of the theology we've been learning in Psalms, a theology of grace and praise. And I would like to direct our attention to a text that deals with the fundamentals of our faith, fundamentals that I think we can lose sight of, namely faith, hope, and love. Dr. Kurt Malmanger, who taught math here for many, many years until his retirement just a few years ago, had a sign outside his door that I don't know how many times I read it. It said, practice is when everything works, but you don't know why. Theory is when you know why, but nothing works. Here, theory and practice come together, nothing works, and we don't know why. And every time I would look at that sign, I would think about the experience I've had through the years with two kinds of students. They don't break neatly into these divisions, but there have always been in my classes the idealists, I'll call them. The students who are always saying, talk to me about our riches in Christ, and I want to know about God's plan and his perfections. And, 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 and I don't want six steps to doing things, I want to know why. And then there are the realists. And those students are constantly saying, tell me how to witness to a JW. And I need, I need ways to control my temper and make it practical. What's it for? Which is more important, the why or the how? You really can't do without either one, can you? That is, if you just jump to application and don't have theology, then you'll ultimately be trusting in your own efforts. But if you learn a whole batch of theology and kind of keep it to yourself, then that completely defeats the purpose of the theology. So I look for a model and how to balance those two things, and the model I find is Paul. Because Paul could simultaneously and always teach deep theology, the why, and connect it to life. And that's what he's going to do, I believe, in this text. Romans 5 Now, the paragraph goes 1 to 11. I apologize in advance for kind of waving at 9 to 11. We're going to focus primarily on 1 to 8, and even that is, of course, going to be constrained by our chapel limitations. But that'll be our focus. A little context. Romans sets the thesis, Paul sets the thesis for the book back in chapter 1, 16, and 17. The gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. Because it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. And that righteousness is something that we don't do. It's something we receive. It's from faith to faith. It begins and ends with faith. And it's always been that way. Even Habakkuk says, the justified man by faith shall live. That's the thesis. God has come to rescue sinners. And then in chapter 1, verses 18 to 320, we discover that that would be all of us. That is, he gives this amazing description of depravity, which describes every single person other than Jesus Christ who's ever been born into this world. So that you get to the end of the section, and every mouth is stopped, and all the world stands condemned before God. Is there hope for sinners? Chapter 3, verse 21, but now, 
a righteousness has been revealed that doesn't have anything to do with our efforts. It's apart from law. It's a righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ who's done it all for us. We can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus because he bore the wrath that we deserved. That's the gospel. Sinful people needing a savior. And by the end of chapter 4, he has established justification. The work of God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And then we get to chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And that's the section we're introducing this morning. And 5 through 8 are all about hope. That's the theme. In fact, go home and study it. The first 11 verses of chapter 5 and the last 13 verses of chapter 8 mirror one another in a whole bunch of ways. And both of these texts are about the incredible hope of future glory that every believer in Jesus Christ has. We now live in hope. And then those middle chapters, 6 and 7, say, oh, and by the way, that hope is going to strengthen you in your battle with sin. Sin can't conquer you anymore. You have hope, not just later, but now. And chapter 7 says, God's law doesn't change. It's still perfect, and we still fail, and yet it cannot destroy us. We always triumph through Jesus Christ. So 5 through 8 are about hope, and that's where I want to begin today. And I want you to see that in these first eight verses, Paul is going to take three fundamental realities of the Christian life, words we use all the time, faith, hope, and love. And he's going to teach us deep, unfathomable theology about each of those, and he's going to connect it to our daily experience. So that theology is not just something we think about, it's something we live I really believe that you and I, if we are believers, will live this theology today and tomorrow and the next day and every day. And therefore, the the theology and the practice need to come together. So verse 1. Therefore, and that word is connecting to the discussion of justification he's just completed. Being justified by faith. Do you see what Paul just assumed right there? He assumed that his readers have been justified by faith. Have you been? According to Romans 1, 2, and 3, that's your only hope. We are born at war with God. We are by nature children of wrath. Our only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This text will not apply to you. Will not, if I can put it this way, work for you unless you have been justified by faith. And if you are not certain that you have trusted in that finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, do not walk out of Maranatha in five weeks on your way to hell. Don't don't let it happen. So this text is for believers. And justification by faith has effects in our life, and they're really obvious. Therefore, Because we have been justified by faith, we have, and what's the first effect Paul brings to our attention? Peace. Peace. Now, we've got to understand this peace correctly, because if you go to over a text like Philippians 4, in which the peace of God garrisons our hearts so that we can sustain trial and trouble, we might think of peace in the sense of Uh, serenity, Um, the peace you have when you're going through a struggle. 
But that's probably not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about something more fundamental, more theological, if you will, more ideal. Because his point here, when he says peace, is that you and I, by nature, are at war with the God of the universe. And it's an uneven match. That's what he's going to describe in these first eight verses. Look down at verse 6. When we were without strength. What kind of strength? Strength to do anything that pleases God. We were without strength. Everything we thought and said and did fell short of his glory. Not only were we without strength, but later in the verse he says we were ungodly. We were not just unable to go to God. We were running from God. We were opponents of God. We were ungodly, which means, verse 8, we were sinners. And in verse 10, it culminates by saying we were, you see the word, enemies. By nature, we are enemies of God. And he's infinite, and he's omnipotent, and he holds the world in his hand. And it just doesn't do anybody any good to be his enemy. That is, we can rage against him, We can demand our own path. We can want our own way. But he's God, and we're not. And we were enemies. And now, because of justification, we are at peace with God. That is, that hostility has been removed. The war has been terminated. We have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. He is now for us. And if he is for us, what could ever be against us? The world, the flesh, the devil, compare them to God. If he is for us, who could be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us everything we need for life and godliness? Who shall lay anything to the charge of those whom God has chosen? Will God? He has saved us. In knowing God, Packer's classic Commenting on Romans 8.32, he says, The meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? And that sounds like pie-in-the-sky theology. Come on, Paul. Much less Packer. Don't you know what my life is like? Don't you know how often I feel defeated? Don't you know how many struggles I have? Don't you know how many hard tests my teachers give me? Come on. I mean, that sounds great as theology, but how does it apply to life? And so Paul adds another effect of faith. You can see it there. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but in also we have something else. And what is that? You can look at me if you want, but you'll see it if you look down. (laughs) Verse 2 there. We have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. We have access. My favorite example of this in the Bible is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 where David's dear friend Jonathan has died on Mount Gilboa. And he looks around and says, did Jonathan have any surviving relatives? Because I'd like to do something nice for them. And he has one. He's a lame man by the name of Mephibosheth. 
And Mephibosheth is brought before David, and he's trembling because what do Near Eastern kings do with the relatives of their deposed predecessors? And David says, oh, no, you're not here for me to judge you. You're here for me to adopt you. I'm going to take you into my family. You're going to have a place at my table, and I'm going to feed you every day for the rest of your life. You have access to the king now, unrestricted, because I love you. And that's what Paul's describing here. We have access now. We have access to grace. We just heard a great song about grace. Do you need grace? I mean, if we're at peace with God, if everything has been made right, if God is in control of everything and is ushering us into glory, why would I need grace? Well, because I live in this broken world and I'm a broken person surrounded by broken people, no offense. We need grace. We need constant help, but what is this grace that God gives? Well, that's an easy question to answer. It's everything I need to get the glory. By nature, I'm at war with God. He has justified me. He has brought me into the kingdom. But he's got a lot of work to do to get me ready for perfection. And so he's going to send me whatever I need. No illustration's perfect, so take this with its limitations. But picture a circle that God has drawn, and he says, That is where you are now. So I step into the circle. I am now in the circle of grace. I stand in it, Paul says. Wherein we stand. I stand in grace. And picture a conduit running from over my head straight to the throne. And God's going to send down that conduit whatever I need. He sends down friends, and he sends down scriptures, and he sends down the the confidence I need to to work when I'm, I'm... not confident and I'm afraid and he sends down trials and tribulation he sends whatever it takes for me to become more like Christ today and that's grace now how should I respond to the grace coming down the conduit what's my responsibility well what does Paul say here we have access and what are the next two words by faith by faith now there there seems to be a tension in the text I access by faith grace in which I stand. So I'm standing in the grace. And God's going to keep sending stuff down the conduit until I am glorified. He who began the good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. But what I should be doing every day is saying, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are working in me that which is pleasing your sight. I believe, and I can turn away from him and trust in my own self-sufficiency. I will not step out of the circle of his grace. He holds me, I don't hold him. But I can turn away from him and forget him and fail to pray and fail to spend time in the word. And what I'm doing then is I am denying the glory he should be getting for meeting my needs. And what comes down the pipe at that point may be a sledgehammer to hit me in the head, get my attention. And say, hey, don't forget about me. You can do nothing without me. And so the posture of my life is to receive by faith the grace that I have access to. And that's the real. I am at peace with God. How does that help me today? Well, I have access to all his riches. So faith is the way we live our daily Christian life. Secondly, we see another concept that's fundamental to our Christian life. And it's at the end of verse 2. 
Not only do we stand in this grace that we access by faith, but we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here goes Paul being all idealistic with us again. He says, the word rejoice here is not our Philippians word that means to have joy. That's a very common word, and it's a beautiful Christian word. But this is a different word. This is the word that you find primarily in the Corinthian epistles, like 29 times in 1 and 2 Corinthians. And the word means to boast or to exult in, to have extreme confidence about. That's the word. So Paul says, we stand in grace and we boast, in the right sense, about heaven about the glory of God that we shall enjoy forever. We have this hope which shall not fail. I know on my worst days that I'm going to heaven and that this time on earth is going to seem really, really short and insignificant one million years from now. I know that. And the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. This light affliction, which is but for a moment... It's working for us. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things are not seen. These things we see, they're temporal. The things we don't see, they're eternal. And that's the focus we have, and that's the hope we have. And it's hard to believe sometimes. That is, that theology just goes, right? It's hard to keep that focus on that eternal glory that we shall have. People talk about uh, some people who are so, uh, uh, so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. I've never yet met such a person. You know, I, I, maybe I've read about some who hid away in monasteries, but I've, I've never met one. All of us are so entangled with the affairs of this life that we find it difficult to please him who has called us to be soldiers. And so Paul, once again, is going to go on the offensive, as commentator Doug Moose says. He knows we object to all this talk about heaven. So verse 3, what's, what's the real here? And not only that, not only so, but we glory in tribulations. You know what that word glory is there in verse 3? It's the same word translated rejoice in verse 2. The exact same word. We boast. We are confident. We are certain. We are sure. We exult in flat tires. We exult in C minuses when we really thought we'd gotten an A minus. We exult in our roommate being our roommate. Why? Because we have a theology in place. Whenever you see that word knowing, and it occurs a number of places in the epistles. That word knowing, especially in the present tense like this, is always saying you need to, in the moment, think about what you know. There's a theology here to help you with your trials. We can exult in our trials because we know that God is working through them. Tribulation worketh patience. What is patience? Endurance. Endurance. Perseverance. Spiritual muscle. And patience, endurance, spiritual muscle, produces experience. And that is maturity. Patience produces maturity. Proven character. And guess what the proven character produces? Hope. We go full circle. 
it's easy to illustrate this with college students because virtually all of you are involved in this kind of process right now in your life. Some of you are athletes, some of you are musicians, and all of you are trying to train in one way or another. And this is what training looks like. Training looks like starting out with kind of a, a glimmer of hope. All right, so as a little eighth grader who was, you know, 5'8 and not all that coordinated, I try out for the basketball team. And I hope I can make it. I hope I can become a basketball player. I hope I can, you know, catch the eye of so-and-so. And the coach doesn't really give me a basketball and say shoot threes. He says line up on that line and, and run suicides. And aptly named. And, and do tip drills and, and, and run till I say stop. And, and, and he kills me. And so I'm going through trial. Because that's the only way I can develop experience. That is, if I can't endure that, well, then I'm going to flag out on the basketball court. I mean, I've, I've got to develop skill and strength. And so the only way to get there is to work on it. I mean, we, we often hear beautiful music here. We, you know, we heard violinists yesterday. Well, you know what? There was a time when you would not have wanted to hear those people playing the violin. All right? You would have run shrieking from the room because they had to learn. And that trial produced endurance for everybody, all right? And then the endurance, after you work at it and you gain experience and you gain ability, you become, I became somewhat, a basketball player. And one day the coach said, hey, Saxon, you're a starter now. I went, wow. And you know what that did for me? It increased my hope. Suddenly that glimmer of hope is, is, is a much stronger hope that maybe this will actually happen. Maybe I'll actually be productive. Maybe now, as a basketball player, my illustration fails because, you know, my hopes were not necessarily fully fulfilled. But as a Christian, they will be. They will be. We can exult in trials because it's God who's the one who's building our muscles and giving us character and therefore increasing our hope. I am much more sure of heaven today than I was when I got saved in the early 70s. Why? Because I know God better. And he spent years working on me and beating me up and showing me my weakness and, and, and working through me despite my weakness. And all of that, guess what? It's increased my hope. And so hope isn't just something that is some theology of some future blessing. It's what sustains you today. It's what strengthens you today. It's what keeps you going today. And finally, he focuses our attention on love. This hope, verse 5, will never make us ashamed. What does that mean? This verse, this word, ashamed, is the same word that occurs back in chapter 1 in the thesis of the book. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's a much richer concept than the idea of being embarrassed. Sometimes when we read Paul saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, we read that as only saying, I'm not embarrassed to share my faith. But he's saying something much more. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unleashed in people's lives. I do not fear, Paul says, that the gospel will fail. It'll never leave me high and dry. And here he says, that hope that we have every day 
that these trials are not being wasted, that God wastes none of our pain, that he is bringing us to Christ's likeness, that hope is not placed in an object who can fail. Hope, we are often told, for a Christian is different from secular hope. People say all the time, I hope I this, I hope I that. And we're told, hey, Christian hope is certainty. Well, it is, but not because hope is a different psychological phenomenon in the two cases. Stay with me. A secular man's hope is in something. He hopes he wins the lottery, all right, the tax on the math challenge. He hopes his, his favorite team wins the championship, and one team every year does. All right. He hopes, and his hopes are only as good as the object. But what's our hope in? Hope in God. Our hope is in an infinite creator, an omnipotent master who has designed and planned everything and is bringing it to the fruition for his own glory and our good. That's why our hope is certainty. And we will not get to the end of the path and say, oh, bummer, I should have been a Muslim. No. Now is Christ risen. And we believe in certainty. And that certainty, that hope, will never disappoint us. And then Paul explains two reasons why we can be certain that our hope will never disappoint us. And the first one's a little surprising, especially for Baptists. In fact, I may have to raise my hands as I do this one. Um, Verse verse, uh, 5. Because the love of God is shed abroad. Shed abroad is this real rich word that means like inundated. It's like a bucket pouring water over something. It's been just poured out. God's love, clearly God's love for me, has been poured into my heart because God, who is love, the Holy Spirit, has come to dwell in my heart. The Spirit, at the moment I got saved, came into my life, and he is love, and therefore I am filled with God's love for me, and my consciousness that God is loving me. Really? What's he saying here? One commentator says, what Paul refers to here is the dynamic experience of the Spirit in one's life. Believers now know in their hearts that they will be spared from God's wrath because they presently experience God's love for them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That sounds suspiciously like a feeling. And all Pentecostalism aside, I know that I'm going to be with Jesus someday because I've experienced God's love in my life. What does that look like? Well, I've said something incredibly stupid, selfish, unkind. And the Holy Spirit makes me feel rotten about it. In fact, he won't leave me alone until I go apologize. You know why he does that? Because he loves me. I have have tried to serve in some way where I felt incredibly weak. And God used my service to bless people. Well, it wasn't me. Hey, that must have been the Holy Spirit showing his love for me. I've been in the midst of terrible trial. My wife had a... Fairly minor surgery, but there's no such thing as minor surgery, as you know. She had a gallbladder removed, and she had kind of sitting on, waiting on the table. They always make you wait too long, and she's shaking, and she's really afraid, and, and she's praying. She's taking it to the Lord. 
And she said she had an experience of peace that she can't really explain. One of her students, I won't name the student uh, in the academy, shared with her how he was just racked with fear of the future and doubt. His, his dad had passed away. This was some, some months ago. And he said, you know what? Suddenly, I just was overwhelmed by a feeling that God loves me. That God loves me. He had a reason that my dad died, but he loves me. And that, our feelings, our emotions, ah, they're up and down, they're up and down. We can't trust in them. But I sure am thankful for them because I know God loves me. And that sense that he loves me and the evidence he has shown me so many times that he loves me because he dwells in me has strengthened my hope. I know I will never be disappointed. But on those days when my feelings are just betraying me, there's another reason we know our hope will never be disappointed. And it's objective. For when we were yet without strength, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Maybe, perhaps, peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John Stott talks about a love gift. What makes a gift a love gift? Well, what did it cost the giver? I mean, if a millionaire gives you five bucks, you don't know how much he loves you. And how much did the receiver deserve it? Well, consider Christ's death on the cross for us. What do we deserve and what did God give? And can we ever again doubt that he loves us? That is, there is a theology in place that says, 2,000 years ago, God demonstrated his love for me and I just need to believe it. He loves me. And then often in my life, that love he demonstrated once and for all becomes very real as I experience it. So there are three facts that you and I need to know if we have been justified by faith. Every one of us is on God's side. No matter how much turmoil there is around us, we are at peace with God. Every one of us has a guarantee a certain hope that we will spend eternity in heaven, and every one of us is loved by God so much that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. And therefore, the rubber needs to meet the road. We should daily access the grace that we have to be Christians, everything we need. We should rejoice in our trials. Not happy, happy rejoice, but exulting, glorying in our trials, because we know where they're headed. They're making us fit for heaven. They are working in us to become more like Christ. And we should enjoy, as God gives us grace, a consciousness that the Holy Spirit lives within us and he is love. And that love is shed abroad in our lives. Faith, hope, and love. I hope this week for you they will not be words, but they'll be the Christian life. And that God will give us grace to live these truths for his glory. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider this text together. Thank you for a, a text which really we could spend our lives trying to mine. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we've placed our faith and to whom we have access and who is our hope and who loves us with an everlasting love. And I pray that you give us grace to live faith, hope, and love today and that you would enable us to believe the truths that you have presented so that we can be transformed by them and I ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.